Welcome, everyone, to episode 16 of Polite Politics. Noah Niederhofer here with Jenny Tayer and Dan Rosenfield. Jenny Tayer, a week away from her triumphant return to the District of Columbia. Jenny, how are you, and how are you enjoying your last week in Houston? Oh, it's good. I'm. It's bittersweet. It feels weird. Um, I haven't left the house in months. Um, like, I really haven't. Like, I haven't even gone to a grocery store um, and Texas is like reopen. So, you know, I've been just here to protect my parents, not, um, not leaving the house cause they're older, but it's going to be weird to transition. Um, I guess as the president would say to transition to greatness. Um, so we'll see. I'm excited. I'm also a little bit scared because, you know, I've been kind of in this condition of thinking everyone's like has the virus. So <laughs> I'm scared of, you know, of bringing more people into my circle and making more contact with people and going out more, but it needs to happen. So I'm, I'm somewhat excited. Excited, but, but obviously nervous and, and taking steps to protect yourself, Jenny, certainly a smart way to go about that. Somebody who never needed to transition to greatness because he started great from the moment he was probably brought into this world. Somebody who's been in D.C. along with me this entire time, although in the wonderful neighborhood of Columbia Heights. Dan Rosenfield. Dan, how are you doing? Great. Um, excited that Jenny Taylor will be returning. We'll basically high-five each other because as, as she comes into Washington, I may be heading back to Texas. Uh, what? What? Oh. We're, we're working out logistics. This Thank you, American sad. Airlines, for your details. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, a, a sad and, and yet exciting time this past week um, was, was really um, motivated and energized by all the protests and um, the statements, um, but also sad that, um, unfortunately, it had to come to this and um, that, that it's taken, uh, you know, marching to the streets to prove a point. So, um, but looking forward to chit-chatting about that coming minutes. Dan, let me stay with you on that because these protests, and Jenny, you know, we'll, we'll get to you as well, there feels like something different here. There have been Black Lives Matter protests across the country in the past. There have been, I mean, the, so many examples of men, and if you look at like Breonna Taylor, you know, women that have been killed, you know, by by police. But this somehow feels very, very different. Do you think, Dan, that the country has finally arrived at a moment where it is ready to confront these issues in a serious and meaningful way? Because in the past, it feels like those protests have exploded and then kind of gone away with a little bit of time. Do you think these ones are built to last? I'm sure you could point to different factors like, okay, maybe we've been cooped up in our houses and that. And, but I, I think I, I'm not a sociologist. I can't uh, pinpoint exactly why um, there's now millions of people literally taking the streets at cities across the nation from my, my good old previous hometown of South Rapid City, South Dakota to Washington, D.C. to New York. Um, but I think people are realizing that um, – in, in very blunt terms, that systemic racism is a thing. It exists. Um, and this is just one of the straws that has been added to the camel's back. Um, and unfortunately, this is the last straw um, where people are just are sick of it and um, really want 
very clear, strong, effective change in police departments and governments across the nation. Jenny, there is also a March on Washington that has been planned uh, for the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The same question that I asked Dan, Jenny, do you see this as something that will actually build long-lasting change as opposed to some of the movements that we've seen, the protests that we've seen that have come before this, where we've seen a lot of talk and some maybe symbolic action? Do you think we're going to see something concrete out of this? We have seen House and Senate Democrats working on a bill with multiple things, and we'll get into some of the details there. But do you think we're going to see some real concrete change come out of these protests? Yeah, I think you may see that change. Um, But a lot of that change lies in elected officials. So we'll see what happens come 2020. And especially, I think it will be important for us to look at more local races, um, because a lot of those um, have to do with who runs the police department or who makes the calls um, on things that, you know, these the grievances of these protesters, such as training or, um, you know, just general policing practices. So I think uh, we will see that in elections more than just um, symbolic gestures, which I think are important, too, for any movement. Um, So that march will be uh, symbolic and I hope very effective. Um, And I hope actually that you know, it encompasses kind of what the March on Washington brought, which was kind of people from all communities. Um, I know there was even, I believe, a rabbi there. Um, so that would be really important to see. Speaking about some of the details in the bill that House and Senate Democrats are currently working on, they are working, it, it appears, to outlaw some kinds of force that police use, chokeholds, you know, things like that. They also want a kind of a national registry of police that have been uh, accused or found to have committed misconduct and an end to some kinds of immunity that uh, police are able to, to call upon. Jenny, do you see some of these as concepts or ideas or policies that Republicans will join with the Democrats to do in a bipartisan way? Or do you think there's going to be a little bit of pushback on some of these things like the immunity um, claims that that police have? Sure, it'll be interesting. Um, I'm not sure. I believe from what I've seen, when it comes to protections that police have, for example, like unions, um, which are huge and protect a lot of police, that's why you hear stories of like a police, um, you know, hurting someone, using extra force when they shouldn't, killing someone um, when it wasn't at all... um, you know, I don't even know if it warranted or if it totally broke from police protocol and they're still in the force. And you're like, what, how did that happen? Jenny, I think you made a great point about having more diversity among police chiefs, because if they come up through the ranks and they see some of the problems that exist within the department and within the communities, they might be in a better position to do outreach in those communities and to build community trust. I want to just narrow down the the qualified immunity 
uh, for uh, law enforcement officers. It has shielded cops from civil lawsuits, even in cases where a citizen's rights have been violated. Definitely something that I think will be interesting to see whether or not these two sides can come to agreement on some of these issues. Jenny, you put a focus on the 2020 elections that are coming up in November. How big an issue do you think these will be in some of these races, especially ones that are very, very close? We're looking at races like the ones that we're seeing in Montana, North Carolina, battleground races. Georgia has two Senate seats up for election here in the Senate. Do you what role do you see this particular movement playing in those races? Well, I think it's going to at this point I don't know because the grievances of the protesters, I'm not sure exactly what that represents as part of a whole community as part of, you know, mostly, you know, these are people who align to the left, um, and you've seen rhetoric as extreme as, um, you know, completely defund the police. Um, you've seen some say partially, you know, divert some funds to community resources. Um, and then you see examples of, you know, these demands being put in front of local officials, such as the mayor of Minneapolis, um, who is um, on the left and who says, you know, I can't commit to that. So you have this um, divide in the party in on the left now um, when it comes to these issues. So I'm not sure how it's going to play out because there's been a quick shift in, um, in what the party is asking for um, in their 2020 candidates. Well, I mean more in terms of the things that, that are being asked of officials. You know, Do you think that this is going to motivate people to turn out to the polls? This is a real issue that gets the vote out for Democrats in a way that perhaps in 2016 in the presidential election that the Supreme Court did for Republicans. You know, do, you, do you think that this could be something that really motivates African Americans to vote, motivates young people to vote? Do you see that this could be a potential game changer for for Democrats? It could, yeah. I mean, I still, um, I'm not sure how this election is going to play out. You know, are we going to vote in person now? Because, you know, we're protesting in person. So you would think we can now go to the polls in person. Um, that will have an effect because it's, you know, there are differences in gaining access to either. So... Again, I'm not sure. Um, at this point, the election looks different in many places. Fantastic point that you made, Jenny, about the fact that we are seeing a lot of protesters in the streets right now. Does that change the way that we view our expectations for what we can now do? Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, a, a uh, I know one, one big fan of, of Mayor Keisha is Dan Rosenfield, who had floated her as a dark horse VP pick in the 2020 uh, presidential campaign. Vice President Biden did clinch the uh, nomination for the Democratic nominee for president. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, Dan, if we're, we are seeing so many people out in the streets right now, I think we were seeing, I think, something between 100 to 200,000 in D.C. based on just, I think, some of the estimates that were 
thrown out there yesterday, does that change the message that many public health officials, many people were putting out there in terms of saying, we really should not be together with this many people in order to flatten the curve because does that ring hollow? Many people are obviously now risking their potential health to be out there. Many of them are wearing masks, but as Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has said, if you're going to a protest, you probably need to be tested for coronavirus now just on the off chance that this happens. Does this set back in any way the feeling that we still have a lot of work to do in order to beat back this virus? The fight is not yet won. It's not even close to being won. Yeah, no, I, I think you see the actual numbers are going up, but um, there's something to be said about how we're still in the middle of a global pandemic and people have not a qualm in the world about gathering with hundreds of thousands of their closest friends from all over the country uh, in a tightly packed street. Um, I think it it is so indicative um, of the frustration people have, but um, I, I think people are, are realizing that, you know, even coronavirus, and this could be a whole new topic of conversation that I want to be very wary of, um, is what some would call almost a racist disease. You know, it impacts actually um, uh, people of typically of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, of um, essential workers, of uh, primarily Hispanic, African-American people. Um, and it's just, I think this freaking virus is one of almost the reasons that people are marching, that uh, a lot of these communities aren't getting the um, their adequate resources, aren't getting the support, aren't getting the protections that they have, that they're getting, that they should have, uh, from their local and state governments. So I think that's that's one of the broader issues. I think you, you touched on something there, Dan, that I think is really important and is probably not getting enough attention is that the conditions that are underlying some of these problems, if you want to talk about just in essence that many members of these communities, African-American communities, Latino communities sometimes have pre-existing medical issues that stem from one it's very tough sometimes that they don't see a number of black patients even at some of the best hospitals in cities typically uh, those in their community are not as good in terms of the quality of care another one many of these people sometimes do not have uh, insurance so they are unable to afford some of these uh, kind of procedures they're forced to take public transit. Public transit certainly is another one. I was also going to mention that certainly with public transit, but also so you see differences in employment, differences in housing, uh, places that are more rundown or older uh, or shoddier have problems, you know, perhaps like asbestos and other issues within the building because they were either hastily constructed or not constructed as well with as kind of in terms of the quality of the housing. And another one, if you look at supermarkets, you know, some of these places that are supermarkets, you know, they have a lot of fast food, but maybe not as much healthy produce, which leads to people not eating as well. And you're looking at that from basically step to step to step. When you're born in one of these communities, statistically, you are just much more likely to have health issues along the way. And we know how deadly this virus is when you look at people that have 
respiratory illnesses or other pre-existing issues. And these communities definitely have those. And what we're seeing now with some of the economic data is that now fewer than half of African-American adults have a job right now. This pandemic, in terms of the economic effects and the health effects, are affecting the African-American community in a predominant way where it is not just killing off economic prosperity, it's killing them very literally in many different ways. I think that was a really, really great point that you made there, Dan. Thanks, Mel. Moving from that, one of our uplifting stories that I'm going to get to a little bit early is the unemployment numbers actually, you know, went in a positive direction, which was which was very surprising. Many economists were predicting that we were going to get close to 20%, and it looks like now I think the the actual unemployment numbers uh, now, uh, thankfully, uh, the unemployment rate went went down a little bit, so we're now at unfortunately still a staggering statistic, but a little over 16. This is something obviously to be happy about, but how long, Dan Rosenfield, do you think we're looking at in terms of a recovery uh, to get these jobs back? We saw it with the recession in 2008 that it took years and years and years to get these jobs back, and then it took about two or you know two months to lose all of those jobs that were created. Some people are still very bullish on a V-shaped recovery in the economy. I think what we're looking at is much more likely to be a V-shaped recovery in the stock market, but a much longer recovery in terms of these jobs because, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, many of these mom-and-pop shops were not necessarily locked out but couldn't get access to those funds from the PPP and other programs like that that were designed to help them. Are we looking at a maybe a decade-long recovery again? I don't want to make any long-term econometric forecasts. Um, I don't get paid enough to, to do that. Um, nor am I uh, gainfully employed by the U.S. Reserve. Um, I, I think what you'll see is definitely different trends in employment. Certain industries are going to thrive and certain industries are going to suffer. Um, I was just listening to um, an interesting report yesterday about how we kind of thought of these certain effects from the 2008 financial crisis. Some were true, some were not. Um, I, I think it's it's so hard to tell. Um, the uh, the libertarian side of me says, okay, let's just let's be very, uh, careful about how we, uh, from a federal government perspective, how we um, are, are supporting different businesses. Uh, with various financial resources, um, but then uh, the the human heart side of me says, uh, "Listen, we need to make sure that we keep all every single as many of our, our small businesses open and uh, support as many of our, our um, various private entities uh, as as thriving as possible." But long term, who knows? Who knows? To the libertarian side of you, Dan Rosenfield, I, I would mention that obviously the Fed has pumped trillions of dollars into the economy, so I think the 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 horse is is out of the barn on that one. I think uh, we're we're already down that path where the Fed has pretty much said they will do whatever is necessary 
in order to make sure that the American economy at least remains somewhat stable, if not strong. Jenny, I want to move on to Vice President Biden, who clinched the Democratic nomination for president. And so now we've set up this showdown that seemed now, I guess, more or less inevitable after Super Tuesday when Biden won a whole host of of states. We have seen, obviously, some of what Trump is going to use in terms of lines of attack against Vice President Biden. We've seen him talk about uh, his son, Hunter. We have seen uh, kind of his accusations of of kind of, uh, you know, with Hunter just kind of saying that Joe is, is corrupt. We have seen him attack Joe Biden as being weak on China, or at least trying to portray him that way. We've also seen the the president try to portray Joe Biden as weak in terms of support of law enforcement and the military. So, Jenny, in addition to these, I want to almost kind of play a devil's advocate here. What are some of the areas where Vice President Biden is strong, and what do you think he still needs to shore up as he goes into the heat really now of of the presidential race as we get into the summer? I think it could be right now, especially when we're at this point, um, when we're looking at race relations in this country, and um, it's becoming central to the Democratic platform in 2020. Um, I think this could be a really detrimental uh, breaking point for Biden, because for so long, he's been, um, you know, and I've seen this coming from the Trump campaign, too, is that, you know, this, this man has been a politician for over 40 years. Um, And, you know, he is touting the accomplishments he's made for the black community. um, When in reality, he was one of the leading voices on mass incarceration, um, which is still part of that uh, issue that the black community is facing um, and that they are, you know, trying to reverse and they're trying to vote for candidates that will reverse that. So that could be a really um, big issue. And, you know, also just his rhetoric um In recent weeks, you know, he went on the Breakfast Club and he said, if you are unsure about voting for me or Trump, then you ain't black. And that caused um, just mass controversy in both parties. And and people, you know, have been questioning those kinds of statements that he's made. Um, So we'll see. But I don't think it's playing out really well for him when it comes to um, repairing racial divides in this country and some um, issues that are disproportionately affecting the black community. Yeah, Jenny, to the point that you made there about the comments that he made on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God, I mean, the the, the thing that comes to mind for me is the kind of facepalm emoji times a thousand. When he said that, I mean, if you were in Biden's camp or any supporter of Vice President Biden, you're just like, how in the world could he say that? That is so moronic. So I think, in my opinion, one of the things that Vice President Biden can do that will help him is less is more. 
just I, I think he gave a 20-minute speech or so on race, which I, I think generally stuck pretty well and, and, and did a good job on in terms of making his point while limiting mistakes. And so I think if you're in Vice President Biden's camp right now, you want him to give kind of small, short, concise, perhaps taped or recorded so you can redo takes or different kinds of things like that because you want to limit the mistakes you don't want him going off the cuff as we've seen sometimes with president trump when president trump goes off the cuff sometimes that's where he gets into trouble when he sticks to the prepared remarks generally goes along really really well i say really really well some people obviously disagree with it but it's certainly less controversial as when he decides to improvise and kind of, you know, make it a little bit of a jazz routine. So I think you definitely made a great point also about the crime bill. That is something that has really hurt the African-American community is is this system of, of mass incarceration. Certainly Biden, I believe, has lamented or at least apologized for his role in, in supporting that bill. What I'd also like to know, Jenny, from, from your perspective is if – Vice President Biden picks a he's already declared that he is going to pick a woman as his vice president. Do you feel that he is now forced to pick a black woman as his vice presidential candidate? So do we go with a Kamala Harris, a Keisha Lance Bottoms, a Stacey Abrams, a Val Demings, who used to be uh, a member of she was a, a former police officer and member of uh, one of the largest police unions? And generally, Vice President Biden has enjoyed the support of police unions. So there are there are many that uh, that have supported him for a long, long time. But my question to you, Jenny, do you feel that Vice President Biden can shore up some of these issues and really help himself if he picks a black woman to run on the ticket? Yeah, I think so. I think if if he doesn't, um, there will be an upset in the Democratic Party, um, and that will really speak to you know, is he coming back to his origins here or is he going to move forward um, and change things? So we'll see. Um, but I do think it's going to be a black woman for his vice presidential pick. In terms of his strengths, because we, we've talked a lot about his weaknesses, of which there are many, and, and President Trump certainly has extensive list of weaknesses himself. But what do you think are some of the strengths that Joe Biden is bringing to the table here in this election? What do you think are really some of the assets that he can bring to play that will be tough for for Trump and his campaign to negate? I think people see him as the ones that are, you know, supporting him like this, see him as like an extension of Obama. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of not even the policies of Obama um, but more so like just the, the kind of, uh, person he was and, you know, he was this very amazing speaker and he would go out and he would, you know, really compel people, um, with his words. And I think that's what, you know, not necessarily Biden will bring, but maybe people he brings with him, um, you know, maybe his VP pick, for example, or members of his cabinet. 
um, will embody that because we've seen, you know, Biden is not, you know, he's had a number of gaffes and he's made divisive comments, um, whether they're a gaffe or not, you know, you can decide, but, um, that, you know, that may be what people are looking for. Um, Mm. but it is worrisome to think about, uh, the actual policies, um, of, you know, what he's going to adopt. I don't know, you know, his stance right now on the whole, for example, defunding the police. Um, it's, it's interesting too, because you bring up this great point about, you know, he's been largely supported by unions. So how will he reconcile the two? It'll be interesting to watch. When we say defunding the police, I think you know, there's there are a lot of different things. They're not talking about completely defunding police departments. That would be absolutely insane. But limiting some of the funding that they, perhaps they get, also limiting the fact that they're saying, okay, we're not going to allow police departments to buy military equipment and things that they don't really need as much in terms for community policing that they shouldn't be armed like members of the military different kinds of things like that that would certainly take away different maybe pools of funding while not preventing them from doing their jobs i think perhaps in many ways we can tie you know if if a police department has lots of cases uh, or, or allegations of of abuse or misconduct then obviously it does make sense to censure them in some way and if you can do that through purse strings then perhaps that is the best way to do it obviously want to make sure that they are an effective police department and and able to uh, effectively police it's very important that we have those places and, and those departments throughout this country but also want to make sure that they're doing their best job to protect and serve which is kind of their the cornerstone of of what they do. One point I'd like to add, um, I think this also brings up the argument um, and it shows the importance of city services. Uh, There's so much talk about, oh, Trump needs to do this and Congress needs to do this. Um, But it really shows the importance of uh, and the impact of city budgets. And, um, you know, as much as, okay, this is going to hurt the federal economy and put us in a fiscal crisis or whatever, these issues that we're we're working with in terms of COVID, in terms of, of uh, Black Lives Matter, are really impacting how the city gets its revenue and how the city city spends its revenue. Um, so, you know, defund the police is definitely an argument, but um, I think we need to look at okay, are our cities equipped with providing essential health and human services um, that can be deployed to uh, every city's unique challenges? Absolutely. I want to move ahead to a another uplifting story here. There was something that I read. There was a fire in New York City in 1983. A New York firefighter went in kind of without protection, just kind of a, a hat and an axe, and was able to save a woman and her four-year-old daughter from this burning apartment building. And 37 years later, they finally reconnected. And what ends up happening is this woman named Deidre Taylor was living with her husband and children in Virginia. She decided to pay it forward in New York City, so she returned uh, to kind of help uh, save lives on on the front line. She's a nurse and and went to New York City to try to help save lives. And what ends up happening was she brought along a newspaper clipping about that fire in 1983 that has the picture of this uh, firefighter from Ladder Company 20, and it says 
who this person is. Some firefighters happened to walk into the hospital to thank the nurses and doctors for the things that they were doing to help people, and she held up that newspaper clipping saying, do any of you know this man? And one of the firefighters happens to say, oh, that guy that in the the firefighter's first name was Eugene, and he says, oh, I know Gene. I've got his number right here on my phone. 37 years later, this uh, this girl who was four years old at the time is able to thank the New York City firefighter who saved her and her mother uh, in that burning fire. So an incredible and uplifting story. I love to see things like that. Want to now head to our final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. Jenny Tayer, let's start with you. I think we're starting to see that things are cooling across our country. I hope so. Um, we're obvi- we obviously have a lot of pieces to pick up um, in the aftermath of these protests and, and even riots. Um, so we will see what happens. But it seems like I saw that the president is now um, telling you know the National Guard uh, to slowly uh, diminish their presence in the Capitol. So, um, we'll see what happens with that. Um, and, and if these protests will kind of cool down and if, if real change will be made. Well, I I mean, I, for one, don't necessarily want the protests to cool down in terms of having fewer protests. I certainly want the protests to happen. I think what we're seeing is, is certainly overwhelmingly peaceful protests. Uh, We're not really seeing a lot of rioting and looting now in the news. So we are starting to also see, Jenny, as you mentioned, fewer National Guardsmen, and we're not seeing curfews as much uh, now. But we are still seeing a large presence of, of protesters that are peacefully protesting for Black Lives Matter, as well as long-lasting change to uh, our country to fix systemic and institutionalized racism and other things like that. Certainly things that we hope will be accomplished. Dan Rosenfield, your thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. Tough week. It was super weird. I went on a run um, yesterday in front of the Lincoln Memorial uh, and seeing National Guard just uh, throughout— I assume National Guard, I don't know what specific uh, entity, but but uh, throughout the National Mall, um, an eerie sight. Um, but I don't know, makes, makes you think about a lot of things. Uh, anyway, uh, really looking forward to uh, maybe heading down to Texas in the next uh, few weeks um, and uh, looking forward to another week of exciting news and schmoozing with Jenny and Noah almost want to end the podcast right there how do you how do you top something like that for for me I think one of the interesting things that we saw was the battle going on between uh, Muriel Bowser the mayor of DC with President Trump and I say a battle it's, it's not exactly but definitely a war of words and then that escalated into action with Mayor Bowser deciding to rename the street in front of the White House, uh, several blocks, painting in big yellow letters, Black Lives Matter, across the street, creating a very powerful visual uh, in the streets of D.C., and also deciding to rename the street Black Lives Matter Plaza. So we're seeing some change there in D.C. She's obviously become one of the more symbolic figures of this movement as people have protested in front of the White House, and she has taken steps to try to lessen, reduce the military presence in the city because it's a city, obviously, that she runs, but the White House is here and they have their own agenda and wanting to make sure that the president and and, and members of, of the administration are protected as well. And so it's become a really 
fascinating situation to see, Dan, as you said, that we have members of the military on national landmarks and things like that, which are so common to, to us as people that live here and, and work here in D.C., that just take them necessarily kind of a little bit for granted, just seeing that and now it, it's such a stark image of seeing these places protected by members of the military. Now, one of the things that I'm looking forward to this week will be any other statements that companies and politicians make. I'm interested to see more details on this bill that House and Senate Democrats are coming up with. I think that could be really, really interesting. And I, too, am looking forward to welcoming Jenny Tayer back to the District of Columbia and hopefully a little more schmoozing as well with the one and only Dan Rosenfield. Often imitated, never duplicated, Dan Rosenfield. For Jenny Tayer, Dan Rosenfield, and myself, Noah Niederhofer, want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Polite Politics, episode 16 of the podcast. We will catch you all next time.